You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, everybody, uh, my name is Michael Crone uh, from the Department of French here in Trinity College and the Centre for uh, Literary and Cultural uh, Translation. Um, and I'm particularly honoured uh, to uh, be chairing uh, this uh, event uh, here uh, this evening uh, with two uh, outstanding uh, poets with uh, a long-standing interest in poetry, uh, language uh, and translation and who could probably describe as well uh, particular forms uh, of oppression uh, that they have been uh, subjected to or witnessed uh, in the course uh, of their, uh, their, their lifetimes. Um, this particular topic um, is um, all the more appropriate in that the uh, two poets, uh, Elaine Nicolanon uh, and Carmen Gunn, uh, are poets who have uh, navigated uh, and traveled uh, between uh, different uh, languages and, uh, and cultures uh, and have explored in great detail uh, the experience of what it is uh, to live in uh, between and through uh, language uh, in uh, various uh, ways. Um, and as we look uh, all around us, um, I think uh, at the kind of political scene uh, these days, um, we see the way in which language can be spectacularly misused. Uh, and uh, abused uh, and used for quite nefarious uh, purposes, um, it demonstrates perhaps even more than ever um, how vigilant and, and careful we need to be uh, with the uh, words and uh, language uh, we use and how we think about uh, and care for, uh, for words. And so I just want to introduce very briefly um, our two uh, writers uh, this evening uh, to this event, which has been uh, organised uh, under the auspices of the Long Room Hub, 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 I say Hub. Long Room Hub uh, and the uh, Centre for uh, Resistance uh, Studies. Uh, so beginning um, with uh, our guest, uh, Carmen Lugan, he is an award-winning uh, writer who is uh, currently based in uh, Long Island, New York. And she is an adjunct professor at Stony Brook uh, University, where she teaches uh, literature and creative writing. And she was born in uh, Romania and has lived variously uh, in England, uh, Ireland, and uh, France. Uh, educated at the University uh, of Michigan and Balliol College in, in Oxford, uh, where she took her PhD in English uh, literature. Um, she is the author of uh, five uh, collections of poems, the most uh, recent one, uh, uh, Time. Uh, being, um, and uh, she is also the author uh, of the um, fascinating memoir, Burying the Typewriter, Childhood Under the Eye uh, of the Secret uh, Police. Um, she's also the author of um, a highly praised critical study, Seamus Heaney and East European Poetry and Translation uh, Poetics uh, of uh, Exile. Uh, and uh, more recently, her 2022 book, uh, poetry in the Language of Oppression was named an essential book for writers uh, by poets uh, and writers. Um, so we really are delighted to, uh, to have you here uh, this evening, uh, come and take part in this uh, conversation. Eleni um, Khulnor, do I really need to introduce Eleni Khulnor, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, she is uh, one of Ireland's foremost uh, poets. 
uh, Emeritus Professor from the School of English here uh, in Trinity College Dublin and the Fellow uh, of the College. Uh, in 2016, she was appointed uh, Ireland Professor uh, of, of Poetry. And in 2022, uh, she was made C of Estonia, the highest uh, rank. Uh, and this honor was conferred upon her uh, by the President of Ireland, uh, Michael D. Higgins. Although I often think, uh, Elaine, of that uh, Irish uh, proverb, Vivian C. Gunlocht, even Homer nods. Um, so, of course, we'll be, we'll be watching for that uh, this evening. Um, an extremely rich body of poetry uh, that goes from uh, Acts and Monuments in 1972 uh, to uh, her collective poems, uh, which appeared in 2020. Um, she's also a distinguished uh, translator uh, of the uh, one others, uh, other poets, Adul Nihol, Kele Panketi, and Ilana Manchoy. Um, so, uh, without uh, further ado, then, um, I would like to uh, invite uh, Elaine uh, and Carmen uh, to uh, begin sort of looking or exploring uh, the topic of uh, this evening's conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael, for the, the kind words. Um, and it's wonderful to have Carmen Bugan here uh, to uh, talk about things which I think are very close to her as a writer, but also things which we need to uh, consider all the time when we're writing the ethics of our various practices, I think is the word that's on the go at the moment. Um, I met Carmen 25 years ago, actually, when she was studying in, of all places, Falcara, County Donegal, uh, with the renowned and redoubtable Irish poet Jimmy Simmons. And uh, we've stayed in touch over the years, and therefore I've been uh, watching and reading and thinking about her work. And one of the things that has struck me, and that I thought I would start by asking her, is her relationship, uh, I suppose, first of all, with her language of, our, of origin, in which, of course, you did write at one time, um, with the process of moving to a different culture, a different language, but also the, uh, draw, the draw, the magnetism of the original language and culture. And I can see that in particular, actually, in some of your recent poems, uh, the use of uh, references to orthodox practices, uh, I mustn't use that word again, um, uh, liturgies, uh, but also attitudes. I was especially struck, actually, by a poem that you wrote uh, at, right at the beginning of the current terrible war in Ukraine about or the Orthodox Easter, and thought uh, how, how uh, rich these systems are in uh, giving us something, when we really need to say something, giving us a perspective, an attitude to, for looking at it. Uh, I suppose I want you to talk a bit about that, and if you'd like to read that poem or another, any, uh, another poem that refers to uh, the, the, the Romanian liturgies, uh, uh, please do. Okay, well, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge honor for me to be here. I'm very grateful. And um, 
I'm incredibly moved by the fact that we are here 20 years later, as it were, something that I would have never imagined. Um, just you know, coming here to look at the library for the first time and to, and to meet you. Uh, and uh, coming from Falcara for, for that first visit, I had no idea that it was going to lead to a moment when we could be talking about where I come from in this way, uh, where we go back to the primary roots of my sensibility, I suppose, that are just now feeding into the poetic um, work that I'm doing. So I think starting with the poem from Ukraine, which I don't have with me actually uh, right at the moment, it, it struck me that um, in a sense the war in Ukraine was blessed by the Orthodox um, community and the leadership in Russia. And I was thinking about the meaning of Easter where it's all about forgetting, not forgetting, but forgiving, and the sort of preparation for, it was a preparation for Clean Monday that I had, um, that I had in mind when I wrote that poem about the start of the war in Ukraine. And I was thinking how we associate Easter in the, in the Orthodox tradition, in the village where I grew up at least, and then that sort of fed into the, the, the whole cultural identity as, as, a, as a believer, I suppose. That idea that we are cleansing ourselves and the earth opens up. It's, it's, you know, it's thawing and it's getting ready for a new beginning. Um, and here we had the tanks roll over, a land that is filled with snowdrops. The violence of that and people being so close to each other as relatives. And we're talking about you know, the, the history of the families across the borders as they've been redrawn over and over uh, by, by history and by people. And I thought of that sense of violation of uh, the self that is trying to renew itself, in a sense. So this is where that orthodox. Interestingly enough, the orthodox imagery has come back during the COVID pandemic in my work. I've been reaching to prayer in a way that I haven't been reaching in the past 20, well, we've been gone for 33 years from Romania. I had a pause from that, I had a break from that. And I think it had to do with feeling a sense of newness in the English language where I have not had the um, religious roots, where I didn't have that sensibility. And so now as I'm growing older and I'm, I'm in my 50s and my father died in November, there is a sense of reconnection with all that symbolism. The, you know, when my, my, when my father died in November, I was asking, and I think I was needier than he was for those candles, for the candle in his hand to light the way. And I was doing this on, and that's technology in a sense in translation. I was on FaceTime with him from New York, and my brother was on FaceTime with him from Latvia, from Riga. And I kept saying to my mother, please put the, light the candle, put it in his hand. And it was when he, we, we, you could tell that he could hear us. He was still there with us. And I was saying to him, I want to be with you every step of the way till you cross. 
and I think this is going to, but I was crossing into the past, mm -hmm. where I felt reconnected with the old self. And I think this is what you're catching up in mm. here. That is so interesting. And of course, it, it, it enables me to go to say that uh, in your work, your father has always been a very important presence simply because of the, his extraordinary life, uh, because of the things that were done to him and to you because of him. Uh, and the, the, the wanting to be with him, but I think also perhaps was it also wanting to understand how could some, somebody could uh, do the things that he did? Well, I will ask you to read a poem, which is bury, uh, not Burying the Typewriter. It's the poem about Burying the Typewriter in the Silent Country, because that's the poem that tells about what your parents' uh, life was like. Um, so well, when you're, whenever you're ready to read that poem, or would you like to talk a bit about it first? Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, shall, I, shall I read it first and then talk about okay. it, or shall I just uh, talk, talk about it first? Well, read the poem first. I read the poem first, yeah. So, um, yes, we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go to this one. In the Silent Country. When the hens climbed the tree to sleep and the dog was let loose in a yard, when their children went to bed, she covered the windows in the doors with towels and hung the yellow blanket over the curtain rod. He went outside, around the farthest corner of the house, dug the typewriter from its hole, then from the garage brought a stack of papers hidden behind tools in a box. They locked the room. Both sat at the large oak table and put on gloves to hide fingerprints. Each night, one by one, hundreds of pages darkened with communal demands. Hot water, electricity, freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom to assemble. Their arms smelled of fresh ink. The room was the sound of struck keys between two breaths. Not one star looked inside, but the wind joined the hush of shuffled paper. Before the rooster broke the news of dawn, he put the typewriter in its white crate and buried it in the ground at the back of the house. She stacked the leaflets in boxes with beans on top, same beans for months, wrinkled and dry like old thumbs. With the towels back in the closet and the blanket down, the room returned to order, quiet and dark like the street. They kissed the children in their sleep. Posing as farmers, they left for distant towns where he filled mailboxes while she watched for informers and police. Hues of morning changed with seasons, but the early sun spilled the light over his face over her hands holding the map. At times, when they stopped to wash out the sleep with cold water, he could see the dark of her eyes. Fists met in a market and in the store, churches were demolished, and no one said a word. 
those waiting in eternal lives or those who saw the crosses kneel in the rubble of saints and chalices. When they slept, words rose from the stacks and they breathed them as they were on paper. Hot water, electricity, freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom to assemble. They retraced in dreams each step, typewriter in the ground, papers behind the tools, gloves in a cupboard, the dark entryways where the words went. Someone looking at them through a crack in the door. Each night, the words replaced them, her pale skin, her long brown hair. They whispered into the sleep of others in the silent country. It's strange, I haven't read this poem in many years now, and I can see it that I wrote it in Donegal. Mm. So it was 1998, 1999 from a writing exercise. We're supposed to do a Sistina, and he never turned out to be a Sistina. <laughs> he never turned out, I was just looking for words that I had to repeat at the end of the line, so trying to understand how to do it. Never turned out to be that. But I think it was then that I was aware of the danger and the power and how words can replace people. Yes, and uh, also, of course, you're recreating an experience. If you were the, six, the, the, the sleeping child, uh, then you didn't witness any of this. But you, you if, so you were recreating it from what you, from what you knew. Yeah. So that was those are stories that my parents were telling us after we came back, how they did and what they did. Because of course, my sister and I were spying on my father when we found the first placards and when we found the flyers in mm -hmm. the sacks. And so. Um, we, and you know, the beans, we found the beans in the buckets. But the poem is, an, this is what we're trying to talk in the podcast today. And in, a, in the workshop yesterday, that the poetry is an act of imagination, is an act of creation that takes on the reality in its own language, in its own way. And I, and I was asking today, specifically when we were talking with Rosie, what does it do? What does poetry do that is different from other kinds of language? Mm -hmm. And so this is what, I suppose this is what I was trying to do, put people, the reader, or put myself rather, in the place where my parents were, imagining what it would have been like for them to mm -hmm. do what they were doing. And of course, uh, if you wrote that uh, 20 years ago, uh, you have returned to that scene and uh, to related scenes in an awful lot of your writing since then. Uh, is that partly just because uh, any writer has got their childhood and their youth as a, re a resource to revisit? Things look so different as the decades passed? Uh, or, or do you think it was simply because your experience was so extraordinary? It's both, I think. I, there is a sense that childhood is the, the foreign land, where the, the country of the mind, where we return. But I also, I returned to those sp specific times because of the archival research that I've done. 
which verified my memory, which verified... I was curious to find those flyers that I knew about from my parents. And so I went to Bucharest in 2010 and then in 2014, and I've asked for the secret police records, and I found some of the flyers that he typed, the typewriter. And the pictures of the mailboxes where he put them with my mother. And it was a sense of verifying my own existence, verifying their memories. It was a very sort of scholarly thing. I felt like I was in a Bodleian library, you know, I was there researching with a very um, strong purpose that I was going to get to the bottom of what happened then. And that in turn, started another process. It was a, another loop that I started doing, which is the reflection, what does it mean to be free? What is the power of words? What is the power of language? Who else did that? Why is it important? Because uh, you know, finding the flyers that I was imagining that they were doing, and I knew the words because my father you know, told us, you know, this is what I was asking for, hot water, electricity, freedom of speech, and how somehow those words were fighting themselves for freedom for people, but at the same time, those were the words that put us all in, under house arrest mm -hmm. in the house. And then so there was I, a poet outside learning English in 1998, trying to imagine and recreate that experience to unburden myself and to tell the story of the family. Of course, with the archives now and with writing about and interviewing my parents, um, it, it gains another significance of the record that exists outside my testimony and outside the moments that I try to create in poetry. Mm -hmm. you, you, the question that you raised there, what does it mean to be free, uh, is of course a, a, an extraordinarily large one. One of the things that uh, is, is evident in your writing is the crossing of borders and in fact I was struck I don't think I had known that before but in your last book there's a reference to your father when he was young before any of you were, of, of you were born trying to cross the border uh, and being caught at the last minute and I wondered and you just mentioned that in relation to the uh, current situation in Ukraine the fact that in that part of the world borders have changed so often and for so many uh, very strange reasons. I mean, but when one thinks of where the borders of Romania have been and where they are now, uh, the, the naming of places, of course, uh, I have uh, heard uh, a Romanian saying, you know, refusing to say Moldova, always saying Basarabia, um, because naming, the naming of places is so important. For, and then, uh, finally, um, in Burying the Typewriter, at the very end of that book, there's a wonderful description of waking up in Rome, uh, which is a, a, the sense of freedom, which I think still all brings tears to my eyes, uh, partly because of, of knowing the place myself, but also because uh, the sheer ordinariness of... Uh, being in a foreign city is so peculiar in the context of what you've been describing in the rest of the book. 
So say something about borders, I suppose I want to say. Uh, yes, I'll say something about borders. And, and you know, I'm thinking about borders a lot. Um, and of course, you know, uh, Roma termini, termini, the Italian word, termini, terminus, the end of the line. And then there we were at the end of the line, exhausted after two days on trains, um, going with, uh, you know, each of us, our suitcase, and, and arriving sort of at the, at the very end, <laughs> terminal, you know, it's also a ter terminal is, uh, you know, a terminal illness, as the, the, end, the end of everything. Um, so that moment was, for me, going back, and you know what was so interesting about that return to Rome was that I found my way back to the hotel as a blind person would find their way. It was, I couldn't remember the names of the streets, I remember only Pensione Dina, where we stayed with the other refugees going through the triage period, where we had to be checked for diseases and for everything else before we came to America, to, and where they gave us cultural classes, what do Americans expect when you ask them how they're doing, how do you write a checkbook, you know, that people do have checkbooks in America, we didn't. Um, and all, all of these strange things that are all really borders of different kinds. And, um, and I want to take that, if, if I actually, if, if I could read the poem about going with my father to the border of, of Bulgaria, because now my father, at the age of 26, escaped from Romania. And he, I wanted, and I told him, you know, before he, you die, you have to take me and I want to walk that part of the Iron Curtain, I want to feel it. And take me there. And so we did it. And so we walked. And it was files. I had <laughs> the maps from the secret police written in Bulgarian with the swamp where he stayed overnight were in the haystack, in a, in a, in a hay pile, with his friend, and, and I had his story, and I had this urge to, to see it, and then so um, I think it should be in this, um, it should be in this book. Um, a Walk with My Father on the Iron Curtain. I cannot tell you how exciting it was for me to take his arm and say to him, walk me, I want to go there with you. I wish he was here tonight. I walk with my father on the Iron Curtain. Arm in arm, my father and I return to the ground of his failed escape. It is now 48 years on. The border between Romania and Bulgaria at 110-111 point is bathed in gold October light. The maze silos where he slept are still here. An old border guard, curious to see us loitering on the train tracks, confirms Dad's memory as if history itself sent him our way with the flock of geese and the red tractor raising all the clamor in a peaceful morning. It's a holy day for me at my father's side with the map of his life, listening, listening to the tempest in that night, icy rain, snow, him and his friend inside the maze shelter melting snow for tea, the horrifying days when they searched the way with binoculars. 
he ran to the other side of the world with 17 half slices of salami, a flashlight, and a dictionary. Some coins, probably more for good luck than for anything they could buy, the shaver for good looks, and a heart full of hope. We carry on past Negrovoda, Torbukin railway station, golden afternoon, and the wind that buffets us. Then Elhovo, that looks more like a painting with a dream worked inside the peeling blue walls of the train station. My father, a puzzle in changing light, seen through broken windows. The coffee and baklava on the main street. Arm in arm in the old quarter searching for the hotel where he hid from police. The trapdoor that is no longer there. Memory leads us off the map, then Lesovo in fog, like an elusive fish. The map with the haystack where he slept to hide from border guards, his hike along the roads through the circular sand, 400 meters from Turkey. Ground of being on his ground of escape. You cannot take the dreams away from anyone who dreams. I never thought I'd be back here as a free man, he says. Here he is, the white in his hair, snow bells at temples, the gray-green eyes, now wet, now dry, twinkling. Locals watch us step off ghost trains at the disused station. So now you might want to say, why are you so particular? How do you know there are 17 slices of salami? Well, I know. On March 20, 1965, there's a file of certification for transfer of objects. And here's a file that I found, and I translated it in a book. Can I read you a little bit of yes. this? Because this is, this, I, you know, this is what makes the researcher into a poet, right? It, the undersigned Lieutenant Colonel Kantarajiu Zehtin of Military Unit 02866, Constanza, handed in, and Major Apostolion from the Regional Section Mai, Dobroja, received the following documents and objects. One certificate of area search comprising two files and an appendix of four photocopies. One tourist rucksack, one binocular case, two woolen blankets, one shaving razor, one shaving brush, one shaving paste, one battery 4.5 volts, one lighter, one coin of three lei, four coins of one leu, six coins of five ban, two coins of ten ban, one English-Romanian dictionary, one German textbook, 12 pages long, in deteriorated state, three pieces of cotton for wrapping the feet, one beer bottle that contains 50 milliliters of medical alcohol, 17 half slices of hunter's salami, two thin loaves of bread, and one screwdriver. And so, you know, it says, mm -hmm. you know, where they sent them and all of this. Um, yeah, and, 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 and the report was concluded 2003-1965 in Constanza. Mm -hmm. So there is that sense of how many people have done that? Mm -hmm. How many stories do we know? How lucky am I to get this, to put it together? 
with my father and to make something out of it that tells that story. I suppose this is where my responsibility mm. comes in. Uh, so that he is, in some ways, uh, very much an individual, in other ways a representative figure, which is, again, these contradictions, I suppose, are what, what go to make poetry. Uh, in your last book, uh, Poetry and the Language and, uh, uh, of Oppression, you talk about the, the problems of people writing about being victimised, that, that there's a claim that people can make, which is that being a victim makes you automatically, uh, uh, I suppose, a, a speaker. Is that true? No. No. And go, go on. <laughs> so, I mean, because there are limitations, mm. and I, I suppose it depends on the attitude one takes to the idea of victimhood and being a victim and it takes the attitude of what do you want to do with how you feel about how you've been treated of history. There's a question of people who, and we know this because history has offered many lessons. Now it's my turn to oppress you. Now it's my turn to hurt you. Now it's my, so there, I, was, I was saying today in a podcast that you know, in a sense, poetry is an offering to the reader. It's not meant to, polemicized, so to, to be a polemic, it is not meant to create um, more rancor where there is enough. And I think that's, in that sense, there is another responsibility to look up ourselves, at least from my, from my experience, I cannot speak for other people here, but you know, to look at myself not as I'm a victim and I'm angry and I want to get back at somebody, but I am somebody who has the right to tell a story and to say it how it was. So can everybody, be, there are limitations. Most people I know from the Romanian community and from other communities who I meet and have immigrants don't have the facility with language. They are not given the opportunity to learn the language. There are other people telling their stories instead of enabling them to tell their stories. So there are many complications, many reasons for, for why we would say that not everybody is a speaker. And it's not because people won't want to be, it's not because people are not capable themselves, but they're not really given the opportunity a lot of times. We do fall. I mean, I'm sure when I was in Ireland last time, the, the story that I heard about Romanians in Dublin was about people who burned their socks in a toaster because they were, you know, they didn't know how to use a toaster and they were, there's this sense of thieves and, you know, smelly armpits and, and all of this. And not to say anything about Ireland, we're about the, but I'm saying that the, the idea of being part of an exodus of immigrants is something to hold on to. Uh, if one is part of that community. Um, and so, and at the same time, we have, <laughs> we have these examples where hundreds of people and their families were taken into homes of other people and given an education and given medical care and given an opportunity to, um, to explain themselves and to talk. Um, another complication of this is also, you know, when Trump was elected, and I live in New York. You live in Michigan, your parents live in Michigan, that's Trump land. That's, that's you know, they're, they're the only sort of 
brutal vote for, for Trump, for Trump, you know, you know, lived there. And I was very emotional, and I thought, but those were people who gave us a home. They gave us clothes. They gave us shampoo. They gave us, they taught me how to speak English enough to go to University of Michigan. What makes you think that these are people who are anti-immigrants, who are anti-democratic ideas? So there is, I think, there's so many layers mm -hmm. of this. Yes, and thanks for that because it, 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 it opens it right out. Um, I suppose I would like to, I'd like to squeeze it back in again and say um, if it comes out as poetry or as refined critical writing, uh, we're told, I mean, it's, it, this is a classic question for undergraduates, you know, poetry makes nothing happen. Uh, on the other hand, there is this compulsion uh, or, or this, uh, yes, compulsion to record. Um, but is there something more than that in, in, if we're talking about resistance? So I've been talking and thinking about this for a very long time, and, and I think it's, it's, difficult, it's, um, it's difficult to formulate it now in a sense, what does poetry make happen? And we'd have to look at those intimate moments between the reader and the writer to find that answer. There is that quiet space when someone's feelings and someone's thoughts, the way they come out in language, if the language is beautiful enough and is interesting enough to invite the reader in, then there is a, I think Milos was the one who coined the expression, the transaction of meaning. There's a, there's a transaction there between the reader and the writer. And I would leave it at that in terms of what resistance is, is that ability to speak heart to heart with one another about difficult things. And I think with poetry you can do it because you could take a little moment, you could, let the, you could take a little instance and leave it at that, and that would unpack the way it does in the mind of the reader. There's got to be a certain mm -hmm. humility as a writer, I believe, in order to have that resistance. So you, you, you're depending on the reader. Well, I'm glad I asked you that because I think that that's a very fine definition of what, what one might hope to achieve. Uh, would you like to read another poem? I, yes. <laughs> um, I was, you, you talked about reading, at one point, you suggested you might read the divorce, but you don't have to read that one. Um, I, I think I want to, to leave it on, a, on, a, on borders and gratitude, if that's okay, because I have a poem that I've written very recently, and it's not in any of the books. It's called Archer Street. It's about walking the street next to my house, and I could, um, and it's meeting somebody who got lost, and, and it's about memory loss and who, who we think we are. Um, Archer Street. Today I met an old man who was lost. He stood between Yorkshire and Archer. I don't know where I am, he said. I don't know how to get home. I think it's number 44, he said, but I can't remember the street name. It was freezing cold out there. I was about to turn around, but the old man stood lost and his eyes had that look 
that is unforgettable, that pulls. I don't know where I am, he said. Don't worry, everyone forgets, I said. I will help you find your way home. Let's look at the numbers on the mailboxes to see if we can find 44 on one of these streets. But the numbers were small, four, five, six. We kept turning around in a cold. Don't worry, I said. I will help you find the way home. I am here visiting my daughter, he said. She is a doctor. Do you have her phone number, I asked. We, we called her and found the address. It was a pleasant walk once we knew where we were going. We talked about his countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and mine, Romania, and how parents dream big for their children after wars end, or after families get away. His eyes were warm and calm, but he kept forgetting names and dates, the way one slips on an oily kitchen floor. And I kept saying, fine, as if everything made sense. But then again, everything makes sense. He's an old father in a new country visiting his daughter. Memory is fragile, like a porcelain cup in a child's hands, elusive, like the foam of the sea when you catch it in your palm. It runs away from you, like a gap in breathing when you are in the middle of a street you've never seen before. It tricks you into believing strangers are your family. You are my sister, he said. Thank you for bringing me home. I never know how streets are named, but I wonder about the precision of archery, the target and the aim of mind, eye, arm, the hands that hold the bow and arrow, the trajectory of memory. I wonder if and how the gap in remembering his younger daughter's name, her husband's exact specialty in medicine, whether home now is Afghanistan, abandoned during a war, or Pakistan, where his girls went to university, and this freezing street where we met, have something to do with how we lose thoughts and bits of ourselves along the way, and find company and gratitude, even when the road behind us disappears, leaving us waiting, confused, away from home. Thank you. That's lovely. Uh, translation <laughs> uh, was what was a, something I thought of asking you about, um, because in, in your uh, the book on on the language of oppression, you actually range very widely over different languages. There, uh, how does one, uh, I suppose, what kind of faith does one have in the translator? when you're dealing with people who are writing in different languages. Yeah, I mean, I mean this I, I just wanted to make it a compliment to you here as a translator of Romanian poetry. Um, I think the translator is an enabler of crossing. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you were to cross the borders between one country and another and, and give people a richer perspective on how people are and what people feel, and what people think about from other languages and from other countries, we really depend on a figure of the translator. And um, 
that ability not only to bring in, to ferry the gifts from one language into the next, but to put themselves into that sens sensitivity space where um, things will get filtered through you. And, um, and actually, is, is that okay if I turn the question out to you about your experience translating? Um, well, again, of course, the, the, the first thing that you feel when you're translating is inadequacy because you so often have to make a choice, am I going to keep this or that? Um, it, is it, uh, if, if I use a word uh, that has a resonance in Ireland, but perhaps not in any other English-speaking country, uh, am I limiting the impact of what's, what's there? So I find translation is both, uh, it's, it's extraordinarily liberating, but it's also very anxious because, because of the, this sense of responsibility. Um, and then I suppose the other thing is, I think translated poetry has a limited audience. Mm. Uh, there's uh, a, a feeling that uh, people go to, there are many people who go to poetry and what they're looking for is not to find out how people feel in Afghanistan, say, they're, or how a poet might exp express themselves uh, in Chinese, but uh, to, to some extent they're looking for a reflection of their own preoccupations and their own society. So I think it's a difficult thing to do, uh, but uh, on the other hand, as you say, we are so dependent on the translator, and we always will be. We will never have, nobody will ever have enough languages to be able to get on without the translator. So it is, it, is, uh, it gives you a, 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 also a feeling of importance, which is always nice. Yes, I mean, because you're the one really literally at the borders between the languages, mm -hmm. deciding what goes in and what doesn't go out. So there is a sense of empowerment in mm -hmm. that, as much as there is a sense of humility, as, you, as you're saying, and anxiety about what goes in and what goes out. And it's, it, always, it always struck me how translators are such good readers, such good, close readers. Um, m many of the translators I met are great scholars as well. They're, they're people who really read critically, really read closely, and that comes together with a big heart. The, the, the love, right? The, I mean, here we're going back to Hini too, you know, the pleasure, the love of language. You wouldn't write it if it wasn't for the joy of it. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't read it if it wasn't for the joy of it. And you wouldn't go to the trouble of, you know, being blamed by a lot of people that you didn't quite get the right meaning if you didn't love us so much, right? That, this, if that wasn't that joy of language. Mm -hmm. so. It's, I've always been very appreciative of that process, but then of course as a writer in a non-native language, I've s sort of come between translation, self-translation, and somebody who is able to have enough fluency to express herself. And what I'm missing sometimes, even in conversations like this, I'm missing the nuance of the cultural, impact or the, the nuance of the expression that I'm, not, I'm never sure speaking English that I might be hitting the wrong note in some way, that I might be saying something that is not quite right, that is I'm seeing it from a starker perspective or from a different perspective. It's very, very hard and I, so I imagine as a translator you're right there fighting mm -hmm. with the two languages. Of course some, some 
poetry is more translatable than other uh, poetry. Uh, and uh, I mean, perhaps it's what, what you describe is one of the reasons why your poetry is full of facts, things, I mean, even slices of salami, uh, even uh, descriptions of your grandparents' garden, the, the, the concreteness of uh, what you're describing makes it possible to, uh, to, bypa to bypass any sense that you're not writing uh, in a native idiom. It's true, and I've become a bit of translator in the poetry itself. So I've recently written a poem during the COVID pandemic about my mother um, having been found with uh, some uh, uh, anomalies in her brain. Mm -hmm. And um, I went straight to the Romanian word and I translated it into English. Um, so it was a question about the subcortical sub infarcts that she's mm -hmm. been suffering. And it was operculum, it was the, the, the part of the, the, the head, the, mm -hmm. the, the brain that was affected. And then I, I looked at that in Romanian, is acoperire, but then again, mm -hmm. to cover, to, cover, to, yes. to shelter, yeah. to all of this. So I thought, I'm just going to go and explain it straight into the poem. So it, maybe because I'm getting older and more insecure as you say about what I'm saying I want to go back to retrieve and to bring into English what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Is acoperis also a, a roof? It is yes, yeah acoperish is a roof a, a for the house yeah, yeah. 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 acoperida is a, it's covering but mm -hmm. yes, it's, it's, yes it's really fascinating. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes I mean trying to move between languages within a poem it's a very dangerous thing to do I think but it, sometimes it can really spark something uh, uh, something that people will respond to, I think, uh, because they, they, you know, oh, I didn't know that before. Yes. That feeling that, that you also get, can, can get in poetry. Um, shall, shall we yeah. uh, move on? And yeah, I think at, at this stage, um, what we'd like to do is kind of open uh, the conversation to uh, to everybody uh, here because uh, obviously uh, what Carmen and uh, Elaine have been uh, discussing there's a great many uh, issues uh, that have been uh, covered here around uh, language uh, experience uh, oppression. Yeah, I just have a really brief one, which, which is related to, to the translation problem. Uh, you write in English, um, has your poetry been translated into Romanian? And if it has, who translated it and what do you think about the translations? Because this is something that must feel really awkward if you write in your second language, somebody else translates your poetry into your native language. So it is a very awkward process. Um, to date, there is no full book of mine translated into Romanian. And that's interesting. Um, curious. Some of the poems were translated into Romanian, and they were very beautiful. They were, it was very beautiful work uh, done. I tried to translate some of the poems myself were to write straight into Romanian, and I failed. I become very emotional. It's, there is, um, this is what, when you're talking about what is your relationship with the Romanian language, and I think this brings that to, to the very core of it. 
I am unable to create in Romanian because of the background. It's still a closed language. Though I speak it with my family, I'm trying to teach my children some Romanian, and I'm increasingly participating in Romanian literary events, something that I would not have conceived 10 years ago. And I'm finding myself very much open and all this love for the country and, and the language are coming back in full force. Again, probably because of the age, but it's very interesting that it, it's a process where people are translating the poems. The one poem that was translated recently was the one I wrote for, for the COVID, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic called For the Time Being. And it was a poem inspired by the words my father and my mother were repeating over and over on the phone calls. And they were saying, Deocamdata, for the time being, we're fine. And that was the for the time being, and that brought such difficulties in me because different people translated for the time being in different Romanian expressions and, and words, and then there was a beautiful translation done there. But that idea that you could say for the time being, deocamdată, that was where I thought, they said it in a way I felt it. How do I put it in English and how do other people translate it back into Romanian? And so, so it's a wonderful process, but then once again is is an exposure is an exposure to one's fears, I suppose. <coughs> My question's kind of um, along the similar lines, because I guess the question of writing in or preferring to write in a language that was in your first language is just very fascinating. And I just wanted to thank you, not just for today, but for the workshop yesterday, which was really so incredible. Um, but I was really wondering if um, that kind of distance that the language allows, that you spoke about in with English, if perhaps if that only works for you, or if that's the case only with poetry, but maybe with other kinds of writing, you find um, that Iranian does, or that the writing does allow you to use that language creatively as well, or I guess what would be the relationship between those mediums um, when, or if it's, if it's just, I guess, that power of, of poetry, that it opens something that, um, that a connection with Romanian is just maybe too, I don't know, intense, or, or yeah, how we would work with different mediums, I guess, my question. Yeah, so there's, I mean, fe feeling in another language, right, is, is different because it's a new feeling and it's the, the words themselves bounce off in a different way in your mind and in your heart. So it's very freeing from somebody coming from my background, from the historical trauma as it was, where we conceived of ourselves as human beings in a specific way, as, as citizens in a specific way. So that invites its own um, question. I loved the distance for many years, and right now I love going back slowly, slowly by introducing these words from Romanian into the English poems. And now I have to be careful of how much I do it. So it doesn't become something cumbersome, and it doesn't become something, it's not misread as something else, but rather a desire to return. Um, we have a joke in my village, you know, the older you get, um, the, the closer 
you walk by the church every day. <laughs> it's the same thing, you know, the, the older I get, the, the older, you know, the more I, I return to circling to familiar places that I, uh, that I left. And so, you know, maybe 20 years ago, I would have spoken very differently about my relationship with Romanian language, and I was speaking very differently, and I was saying, it's not the language that I want to speak in. It, I was almost sort of taking the posture of somebody who's punishing the language for the things he has done to me. Um, and I dealt with a lot of awkwardness from people talking to me about that, and I was angrier. And I talked about this in poetry and the language of oppression, that, that sense of unease, also feeling judged for something that he felt uh, as a response. And then with time, when with the distance, there is a reorientation when I'm able to think to myself for the first time in 30 years, it isn't the language that has done it to me. It was a historical moment. It was a particular time when people were behaving a certain way. One cannot take it on a language. One can only understand the different languages used and the different registers of language by which people control each other. But one shouldn't just go and sort of say, I hate my language. It, but, you know, 20 years ago, I would not have even thought that. It was different. So it's growing backwards. And, and I hope that I'm growing wiser, you know, as I, as I grow closer. And I have plans to take my kids to see the painted monasteries and to, to learn more about the traditions. And, you know, they love the, the folk songs. That's not who I was 20 years ago. And I'm glad that I'm changing that way. Um, is it, you know, I'm, I, I don't see myself so much as a forgiver. I, I, won't, I wouldn't take that mantle of, oh, no, I forgive. You know, that thing. I wouldn't do that. But I would say is, hey, I got over some of the stuff, and I realized that there's a larger context than just my one experience. Translation is a huge part of that. Thank you. I was very keen to ask both of you um, a question about literary tradition and whether you think it matters to think of yourself as somehow related or related to a part of a tradition, because in Elaine, you know, I think of you in terms of a, a very distinct English literary tradition because of your teaching, as well as obviously an Irish tradition, which is quite different. But for Carmen, what happens when you've been dislocated so traumatically in, in your family's history from what might have been a literary tradition and be forced to go to another set of, of, or another kind of literary environment, do you relocate yourself? Do you just let ideas and tradition uh, fall away? Do you forge a new tradition from like-minded people around you? I just wonder, does it matter at all to, to have a sense of that, that blanket of tradition in any way wrapped around you? Yeah, so I think it's very important for us to belong to something, to someone, to a group. Being uprooted makes the sense of belonging more important than for somebody who hasn't been uprooted and hasn't had the opportunity to feel alone or to feel dislocated. So I am, and I think many, many of the dislocated writers, the, there's, there's a whole area of diasporic writing, and then people tend to put me there, and I'm grateful that they're putting me there. It's, it's okay, I'm okay with that. Um, because 
one lets go of one particular literature, maybe I don't belong to the Romanian literature because I haven't grown up as a writer there. I've been writing in Romanian when I was a kid. I, I wrote when I was a kid, but not after the age of 19. So I've abandoned, in a sense, the language. I wouldn't use the word abandoned. I would just say that the contact has stopped for all these reasons that I've explained before. But am I an American writer? Um, am I an Oxford? I mean, when I was in Ann Arbor, you know, people said the Ann Arbor poet Carmen Bugan was an Arbor, the Oxford poet Carmen Bugan, you know, and I said, <laughs> I love that. That, sort of, that. that ability to be assimilated into whatever it is, but it isn't a true assimilation. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't let go of the word tradition, and I wouldn't let go of the concept of tradition, and that one has to belong to some, some tradition. But then it's very difficult to define which tradition. I mean, I had a, um, a, a walk around Dublin yesterday with Paul Jerk Smith, who is here, and I, and I asked him, how do you feel knowing and feeling and you know, feeling so rooted? How does it feel to you? I'm curious about that. How can you say that this is my street and this is my church? And this is how he changed, and this is who my father was, and we're here. It's, I envy that, and I love that. So, but I have to belong to something, otherwise I would fall between the cracks, and I don't know where I would fall between the cracks. So I have a need to belong. So I would say, yes, the diaspora, and there are many of us in these days, there are many of us, and I think the biggest theme of the diasporas are dislocation, our borders, our multiple languages, and a sense of uncertainty about where we belong. Mm -hmm. So this in itself is becoming a tradition, I think, especially, well, now even after COVID, when we have all the sort of the people who can work remotely and they're willingly moving from place to place to survive economically, um, that's an, another type of migration, not necessarily deep historical things. I suppose the <coughs> the great thing about English is its 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 reach, um, and the fact that one can, if you, you can be true to one tradition, you can be true to a subject matter, and um, um, a, a whole all the emotions that go with it. Uh, but that you can still allude to, or depend on, or perhaps you know, consider that your audience uh, may pick up on things that belong to other parts of that tradition, which may actually not have anything particularly to do with you. Um, I, I'm just thinking of uh, uh, an Italian student asked me a question uh, about um, enjambment, which is a kind of poetry workshop term that I'm not terribly used to. <laughs> but. Uh, and then I, I thought, but obviously in English it's Shakespeare and Milton. The, 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 it's it is precisely something. Also, I think also that Milton learned from Virgil. But it's such um, uh, a, a mainstay of one part of a classic English tradition, which I lived with for such a long time, uh, that uh, it seems absolutely natural to me. Uh, much less so, to, apparently, to an Italian. Rosie? Thank you but both very much for me. Also, I, I, I too have a question for both of you. And, and I suppose 
I, I wonder, Elaine, um, if you might say something about um, your relationship with Romanian relative to your relationship with other languages that you speak and read and, and have translated from. And Carmen, I wonder if I might ask you about your experience as a reader of Elaine's uh, work, perhaps particularly of her translations from, from the Romanian. Well, I'll, I'll say quickly, um, I learned Romanian fairly late. Uh, I largely learned it on the back of the fact that I do speak Italian reasonably well. If, I hope there are no Italians present. But, uh, uh, that, uh, so, so, so I didn't find it particularly difficult to learn the language, but to learn the, uh, the meaning of what we were talking about, tradition, for example, the poet I was translating, Iliana Melanchoyu, uh, was using references to an earlier poet, Bakovia, mm -hmm. largely because uh, she could write in a particular rather subdued style and say things which were very hostile uh, while using this sort of protective colouring. So I think that, uh, I mean, I only know that because she told me. But uh, I wouldn't have known it. It's not, it's not being able to recognise the, 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 the interweaving of an individual voice. And of course, that's especially at a time of censorship, where, again, she, she would call a poem pastel, uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, don't pay much attention to this, it's just atmosphere. But if you actually looked at what the poem was saying, it meant something uh, quite different. So. My relationship is something that I'm, I'm learning, uh, and I, I, I don't think I'll ever really catch up because, of course, there's a whole swathe of younger Romanian poets that I just read occasionally from uh, as I come upon them. Uh, it's not always that easy to get hold of them here, but there is the internet. But you're 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 wondering just uh, how a, a poetry, a poetic tradition is developing. So that answers the question about my relationship with Romanian. Um, Carmen, uh, oh, you were going to say something about, about the translations, but maybe maybe you'd rather not. <laughs> no, so I've, I've read the, the, the translations and, and reviewed them earlier on when you, many years ago when you, when you had the Southward editions. I think there were yes. the, those the translations um, of women, but what I was wondering from there was, do you feel that some of that contact with, with Romanian women and their <clears throat> way of speaking and their concerns, have, do you feel that that has filtered into your consciousness as a poet, as a woman poet in particular, from them or...? or? Yes, um, I mean, any romance language uh, throws you into a, a different place in relation to language and gender, because you have to keep on reminding people that you're female, or at least if you don't, uh, you, you will simply not be understood. So uh, that's one of the, 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 the things that, that one comes up against. Um, I think too that uh, romance languages in general are less preoccupied with economy. Of, I, I don't know, if anybody would agree with that, but I, I feel that um, you know, you, you know, when you're uh, writing an email, you're supposed to say hi because it takes fewer keystrokes. Well, if you're writing it in Italian, you have to start with carissimo, 
and you have to end with a flourish because otherwise you're being rude. Well, depending on the, the carissimo is, is, for some, is for people you know well. But you have to do all these things. Uh, so, so learning a language um, brings you into uh, versions of, uh, of social interaction, which are so extraordinary. I did have a student who used to come and talk Romanian to me. And uh, I finally said to her, um, I have to find out how a very polite old lady is supposed to say, um, it's time for you to go. <laughs> and she said, uh, ah, yes. I mustn't keep you any longer. I mustn't keep you. But, but the ah was, was, was the bit that really hit me. The, 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 it wasn't just the language, it was the, uh, the musical uh, undertow of the language. And how do, on earth do you convey that in poetry? But, but knowing it is important, to me anyway. Yes, because it forms that layer, right, mm. before, before going into the translation process, yeah. it just sort of prepares that, uh, that Yes, exactly, yes. Of, yeah. Mm. Um, I've actually, I, I mean, I have a, a, one poem where, you're, where I'm listening to people speaking a language, and uh, I realize that even though they may all appear to be the same gender, they're not even all masculine. So again, that's the kind of thing that, that uh, you don't necessarily listen for in English. Um, and the English, you know, it still has this big burden of the masculine, of the assumption that everything is to be referred to in the masculine. Um, and the problem with that is that Irish is no help uh, because there's not, uh, yes, of course, Irish is a gendered language, but it doesn't let you out from under that particular assumption that uh, if you say dinner, that it's a, that it's a male person. Uh, and I think uh, the, the Romance languages are wonderful for, for, for showing you how, how, how unnecessary that particular mindset is. Yeah, in any case, I'm I'm very grateful for for your work on on um, translating the Romanian poets because I think it helps them again gain a voice. In it. there's a, there's the, the whole idea that translation helps other people gain a voice in another language, and I think it's important that the the work itself um, that you do and the the poems that you're able to resurrect in, in, in English um, make it possible for, uh, for them to be heard where they would not uh, be heard. Because mm -hmm. especially, I mean, speaking about Romanian, you know, in particular, you know, we're not, again, I have to be very careful how I phrase this, but it, you know, it is not the literature, and it is you know it's not the great French literature that people are rushing to read, where the the Italian literature that has that tradition again, where people want to know everything there is to know. That uh, you know we do have Eminescu, and we have Bakovia, and we have some, but a lot of the poetry uh, from Romania has come. I believe that it has come through. Um, the Cold War, um, and, and that's again, it's a historical moment that is responsible for bringing the sensibility 
and, and it's highly symbolic and it's very difficult for a Romanian to, to read. And I imagine it would be very difficult to translate because of very idiosyncratic uh, uh, symbolism that is, that is associated with that. I mean, it was, it was written to go over the heads of the censor mm -hmm. and a lot of time had a lot of very personal symbolism. So how on earth do you translate that? I don't know. I loved what I read of your translations, <laughs> but you know, knowing all of that background and also knowing that we were a project, we were, we were, I wasn't. I was too young to write during mm -hmm. the Cold War, but the, the poets were coming through were, I mean, you think about, you know, Malanchoy, you think about Anna Blandiana, you think about these people, Hi, highly difficult. Mm. Yes, and they, uh, some of them hung together, but I think the, 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 they had difficulties with, with each other also. The other thing is that uh, people at, at such a time uh, are depending on their audience. They, 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 have, they must depend on their audience to understand uh, what the references are. And that may, that, to some extent that may shrink the audience down. Um, again, uh, one of the things that uh, features in some of the poets that I've been reading is folklore. Yeah. Um, and actually I'm drawn to that because I'm very drawn to folklore myself. But I'm well aware that it can have, it, 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 you can be put in a box if you if you make folkloric references, even to very obvious things like, um, well, we've already talked about that Romanian observances around death, which you know is, are very moving and they have to do with an enormous life event, uh, but you have to be careful translating something like that, not to be too uh, folkly about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Um, I am very conscious of the fact that our two conversationalists have been on the go for uh, almost 80 minutes. Um, so uh, I, I think it's, um, I think all of us would agree that it's been an extraordinary privilege uh, to be a part of this uh, conversation for all kinds of reasons. I mean, in terms of um, so many of the areas that, that we're dealt with, but also to be reminded. Uh, because I think we need to be reminded uh, again and again and again how restricted our notion and, con and concept of Europe is um, here uh, uh, on the island that uh, so often it tends to be geographically restricted to uh, a particular part of, of, of Europe and, and I think that that kind of expansion uh, of, 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 of horizons that, that, that both uh, of our poets have been actively engaged in is something that I think we have to be deeply, deeply uh, grateful for to constantly rectify, uh, I think, this excessively narrow uh, notion of what constitutes Europeanness and, and European culture. And I think that's been uh, extraordinarily uh, good tonight. Um, I was going to take a, a cue uh, from uh, Elaine's uh, Romanian lesson and say that we, we mustn't keep you any longer. <laughs> um, but uh, I do want to thank you most sincerely. Um, this is that rare, wonderful thing. Uh, a warm, sunny uh, Irish day, uh, and you have sacrificed that 
uh, to, to, to listen to the conversation uh, this evening, but I think you will agree in the words of the great Edith Piaf, no regrets. Uh, this really has been uh, an extraordinary uh, event. Um, I think we're particularly grateful once again to uh, Eve Patton, the director of the London Hub, uh, for extending uh, the hospitality uh, of this, uh, this, this place. Um, to the Centre for Resistance Studies uh, for, for um, uh, organising this and, and, and other events. Um, so uh, once again, just on behalf of you all, uh, I would like to thank uh, Carmen and uh, Elaine.